Hello. Hello, mothers and fathers and parents. I'm Edwina Throsby and I run the Talks and Ideas program here at the Opera House and I'm really pleased that you can all come today. Now, there are some babies in the audience. Babies cry, it's their thing. Um, if a baby's crying near you, just, just be understanding. Um, we're all doing our best here today. Uh, you can keep your phones on, particularly the parents whose children are in the first ever crèche for a Talks and Events <laughs> event at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, if the crèche needs to get in contact with you, you'll need to have your phones handy. Just make sure they're on silent. Now, here we are to talk about mothering. I was thinking about this last week when I was uh, rushing my daughter out of the house to get her to school. We were late, obviously. And we were halfway down the street when she says those words no parent wants to hear, Mummy, it's pyjama day. So, <laughs> so we run back to the house. The pyjamas are in the middle of the floor where they've been dropped, of course. Pick them up. The wheat bix is forming a crust already. All the others are in the wash. So I'm there, one hand scrubbing the wheat bix out of the pyjamas, the other hand texting work to tell them to put my first meeting back because I'm not going to make it. Run out the house again, get into the car because obviously we're not going to make it in time if we walk. Driving down the street, a van pulls in front. I let fly with a stream of expletives which were frankly inappropriate. <laughs> and from the back seat of the car, my, my daughter, who is learning about Buddhism at school at the moment, said, Mummy, you really need to try and keep a mind of equanimity. <laughs> you know, it's a hard job we do. And it's an important conversation that we're all here today. The way a society treats it, the people that look after its children politically, economically, culturally and socially says a lot about what that society values. And I think that if we can come together and learn about what some of the policy is, think about what some of the cultural attitudes are, think about where they come from, then maybe we can all support each other better to kind of do what's a really, really, really hard job and to be happy parents and raise happy kids. So today, I would like you to welcome a kick-ass panel chaired by uh, the amazing Fenella Kernerbone, who is the head of curation at TEDx Sydney. TEDx Sydney is coming up in June um, and does all sorts of other broadcasting wonder. Um, she's with Rebecca Huntley, Clementine Ford and Maxine Beniba-Clark, and I think we're all in for a massive treat this Sunday morning afternoon. Thank you. Hi everybody. Hi everybody, how are you? <laughs> Hi babies and kids, great to have you all here. <laughs> um, what a delight to be here at the Sydney Opera House and to talk about parenting, the mother load, the politics of parenting. Thank you so much, Edwina Throsby. Um, where is the wheat bix now? That's the big question. Um, we're going to spend an hour talking about some really big, big issues, some fun issues, some serious issues, some deep issues, and I'm incredibly privileged and, and fortunate to be joined by three extraordinary women who all have their different perspectives and some fant fantastic insights for you. At the end, there'll be some time for Q&A, and I'll, and I'll let you know about that, uh, of course, as well. Um, I almost feel like they don't need any introduction, but I've been told that it's important to do so. So I better introduce them. On my far left, we're joined by the wonderful Clementine Ford, of course. Who's written? Who's, yeah, of course. Um, I feel like I know Clementine Ford because my partner was reading Fight Like a Girl in bed and every night I would get these quotes and uh, basically paragraphs read out to me. So uh, it was a very intimate moment with you. It was pretty sexy. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was I'd awesome. I like to think that I facilitated some... Yeah, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> 
Sorry, Cinnamon, if you're in here. Um, <laughs> also, of course, in the middle, we have the most extraordinary award-winning writer, a book, Foreign Soil, which I've just been told is going into schools, um, which is extraordinary, but also um, a, a beautiful memoir about growing, black, uh, growing up black here in Australia. Maxine Beniba-Clark, a huge round of applause. Um, and he spent last night tweeting about the wedding. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we will, we'll, try, we'll try and avoid that one today. Uh, and finally, um, she hosts a fantastic event that is at the Giant Dwarf, that I was about to say Red Dwarf, so I had to look down, <laughs> say something about my age. Um, the author of Still Lucky, she's a broadcaster and one of Australia's premier social researchers, Dr. Rebecca Huntley. <laughs> okay, so lots to get through today. But I wanted to start off by focusing on the fact that in the room today there are a lot of women, and some men of course as well, and we have an all-female panel. The focus of course is on, on parenting. So let's, let's start with, with you, Rebecca. Why, why is this a female-focused event? I think it's a real problem it's a female-focused event because I want to hear more from men. Right. We don't hear enough from them, you know. They're very backward in telling us. I'm telling a joke. <laughs> no, one is, no one is laughing. Like, <laughs> no one is laughing. It was cynicism. <laughs> this is going to be I awkward. I think to fight so early. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Maybe next you move to the next person. Why is this? A, this is a panel on motherhood. Um, and so that's why we have three women. And, um, <laughs> and if we had more men, then I'd have to be home looking after my children. And as it is, my husband's there and that's where he belongs. Um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, look, I'm not saying that there isn't and some interesting perspectives that we can hear from men in terms of how motherhood is constructed and how they see parenthood more broadly. But I don't know, I'm, I'm glad that we're not hearing from that. I'm glad we're hearing from two fabulous from women, women and we've like got up the room that we've got at the moment. Mm. Maxine, yeah. what, what's your perspective, the, the need for this to be a conversation uh, about women, for women and with women? Yeah. How do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're here talking about this because obviously with the people who have the experiences, I do think it's a problem that there's not more men in the audience. Why aren't there more men in the audience? You know, it wasn't particularly a it wasn't particularly a female. You know, yeah. no one said only women could buy tickets, and I think that is part of the problem in a sense that you know men have not come here to listen mm. um, as opposed to to talk or to mm. listen to other men talk. Mm. And the structural issues, of course, that that exist that that make that happen. Clementine, what's your perspectives? Uh, I agree with both Rebecca and Maxine. I think that um, especially on the fact of not having more men in the audience. I mean, that's kind of a frustration generally when it's uh, panels talking about issues that primarily affect women and particularly, you know, issues of gender inequality. And to an extent, of course, the majority of the audience is going to be women because, you know, you know we still thirst for hearing that kind of content. But it would be nice if there were more men fighting to get the spare seats. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting because uh, probably like a lot of women in the room, after I had my first baby, my only baby, I joined a lot of mums groups online and found those to be like, you know, really life-saving in, in lots of ways that I'm, uh, I'm astonished and in awe of the people who came before the age of the internet and didn't have those mm. connections mm. and that ability to be able to reach out to other people in the same boat. Um, and I saw on a, on a different topic thread today, someone was saying something sort of kind of vaguely dismissive of, of a, one of these particular mums groups and a bloke came in and had a comment about it and, you know, uh, it was the, it came up mums group and he was making jokes about like, oh, Bunning's dads, Bunning dad or like, um, might attend dads. 
And I just commented saying, well, for that to happen, dads would actually have to go out of their way to form communities with each other. Mm, mm. And I feel like that's the other problem is that, you know, we hear, we hear obviously, we want to hear from women on the topic of motherhood or non-binary parents on the topic of motherhood. Mm, mm. But fathers, as far as I'm aware, are not going out of their way to form the kinds of communities and bonds that women are forming with each other in order to navigate motherhood. What ends up happening is that women end up having to do that labour for them as well. So To, to make and to organise yeah. those structures for them, yeah. you're saying? Yeah, and right. within these groups you'll see women saying things like, oh, my husband's really struggling. You know, could we maybe start a dad's group for them? Yeah. Or does, <laughs> does anyone know of a dad's group that they could join? And it's kind of like, why are you on here doing that for yeah. him? Work for oh, yeah, him. That's yeah. yet another. Pe another. I mean, we tend to focus so much with women on the kind of the the unpaid work that they do in the home. So who's doing the laundry and all the rest of it? But it's that other layer of emotional and social and cultural work that they do, not only for their children, but, their, but their, for, the for their partner. Family. And certainly in the research that I've done, the small amount of research that I've done on um, men that take off more than a couple of weeks of paternity leave that decide to take off significant periods, one of the things they do talk about is what they miss is that idea that there's a, a father's group and a group that they'd be able to have that kind of parallel stuff that mother's groups do have. So you're right. Um, it's a real, it just shows that we've got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. What is the research? Can you tell us a bit more about the research that you have done that does uh, demonstrate, you know, that, you know, you talked about just before that, that women are doing the majority of the domestic work and, yeah. and the load of work as well. What does yeah. it tell us or show us? Oh, look, one of the most depressing, you know, I've done 15 years of research on Australians and the most depressing piece of research I ever did was on full-time working mothers and just how... Um, overwhelmed that they felt about um, the combination of different things they did. And one of the things that was hardest was the constant struggle that they had with their partner to really see the extent of invisible work that they did. And I remember one woman just saying, you know, when did having it all mean doing everything for everybody? She says, well, I'm running around the house. She said, I've got a mop stuck up my ass. I'm on the phone <laughs> trying to organise one thing. My partner comes home and says, I'm really tired. And, and she just said... <laughs> is dinner ready? And, I mean, I mean and what's really crucial is that women often have, in that kind of scenario, a bit of a choice. Either constant conflict with their partner to get them to move or this kind of martyr, oh, I'll just do it myself. And I've got to say the martyr's path is the worst thing. 30, 30 years go, um, passed, and he can't even use the washing machine. And mm. that's mm. a real problem for those kinds of relationships. Um, so it is a real difficulty and it's, a, it's probably the only real common thread across all kinds of mothers that I've talked to, regardless of, you know, age, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic class, that kind of fight with their partner for some kind of equitable share of everything associated with parenthood. Mm. And for recognition of the work yeah. that they do do yeah. that is un, yeah. un, well, unrecognised, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, any other comments on that one here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's also so much tied to, you know, income disparity and the gender yeah. pay gap because the reality is usually someone has to stay home, you mm. know? And I do know a few stay-at-home dads, and all of them are, were the lesser earner, mm. you know, in their, in their home. So it's kind of, you know, we think of it as, well, the woman, woman needs to take off time because, you know, obviously they need to breastfeed and they're the ones that are going to raise the mm. children. But, you know, it's tied into all of these other issues. Mm. Um, the reality is it just doesn't make sense for the person learning, earning the lesser income 
to go to, to work. Yeah, to go to work. And um, usually it's the woman that is asked and is, you know, expected to stay home and do the bulk of the childcare. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's talk a bit about some of the politics, I guess, of, of parenting in Australia. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I was going to put you on the spot, Clementine, and see if you could give us a quick reminder. And I, I was like, is it 16 weeks that we get off per year or, or something I like that? I think it's 18 weeks. 18 um, weeks. But I just wanted to really quickly yep. say on what Maxine was talking about that um, it would be interesting to know in circumstances where if, if in a hetero situation a man's earning less money and he stays at home, whether or not the woman who's coming home is still doing more around the house and she more is. of that domestic she work. She is still doing yeah. it, so what it says. Yeah. All the ABS stuff, as you know, shows that after that child, when she goes back part-time, she will be doing exactly... This is the time you serve at the ABS shows. When she goes back to work part-time, she does exactly the same amount of unpaid work in the home that she was doing if she had no job whatsoever. Wow. If they are both working full-time, regardless, and we're talking hours here, not income, she's still doing all more, significantly more, unpaid work around the home. But the interesting thing about dual-income full-time couples is that the change in unpaid work in the home is actually because they're outsourcing through cleaners and all the rest of it. And so the other problem I have with that is we cannot make the equitable distribution of labour in the home dependent upon poor women <laughs> doing our laundry, cleaning our, our homes. Work. It's often women. So I kind of, you know, even in that kind of scenario we're talking about where perhaps two well-paid, full-time working people have negotiated what feels like parity in the home, it's, it's dependent upon women who are not being well paid and potentially being exploited doing that work for them. Mm. Um, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, the thing that occurred to me when I was in those first, probably the first four months after having my baby, and, and being completely overwhelmed by the intensity of everything that was involved with that, not just the sleepless nights, not just the physicality of it, but the actual steep learning curve that you have to go on the first time you bring a baby home and you have no... I had no idea what I was doing. I liked babies, but I... <laughs> I, I mean, I Thank did. God I would have that. said, you know, I love babies, but I'd never really spent any significant amount of time with babies. Um, so it was, it was terrifying for me, as it is for so many people. Mm. But what I realised, uh, you know, that all of the arguments that I had with my partner, um, real barnstormers in those first... Well, we still have them now, but um, <laughs> but particularly in that first six months was was about what it was about uh, the transition of a relationship that I had previously experienced as being fairly gender equitable to this space that was suddenly completely by by necessity in some ways mm -hmm. completely non equitable. Um, and the reason that I think going back to what you're asking about parental leave, the reason mm. that I think that it's really important that we push for a really strong system of paid parental leave that also encourages and, and I don't want to say forces, but culturally kind of forces uh, men to take that time off of whether or not it's uh, 16 weeks or 18 weeks to spend that time with their children is because they have to go on that steep learning curve too. Like it's really hard once you've done that learning yourself to get back to a space where it's, where it's equal. I feel like there's a lot of work that has to go in after that where men have to be put in positions where they, they have to figure it out themselves. And part of the problem is that there's not always the, f the actual time for them to do that if they've fallen back into, into the a, work practices. Mm, yeah, yeah, into practices of they go to work, etc. Mm. But then the other thing is, is that martyrdom comes in, you know, that <laughs> women either feel like they have to do it or they have the sense that he's not doing it right. And I'm certainly not putting that blame on them. I think that this is, this is 
all stuff that kind of still comes back down to the fact that we live in a gender unequal society mm. and we have mm. to put those expectations on as being something that's not just going to relieve the burden for women, but that's actually... You have to kind of walk through that fire in order to get to, to a, a next level of connection, I think. Yeah. I think as well that, you know, that concept of kind of martyrdom is also... You know, that's very much tied into the way that society perceives women who, you know, aren't, work, aren't working for monetary... Yeah. Direct mm, monetary yeah. compensation. So there's this yeah. thing where when you are at home and you're not earning an income, you feel as if, well, I'm not, I'm not being useful, I'm not generating an income, mm. I'm not. And I think that, you know, that martyrdom is not necessarily because you are wanting to do everything the right way. Mm. I think it's just to do with the way that we perceive mother parenthood. Mm. We so we ourselves don't feel like we're doing the right thing if yeah. we're staying home. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. That's an international thing as well. I, I didn't realise this until recently, but um, uh, the... the Unpaid labour that's done mostly by women around the world isn't, isn't included in the UN's national system of accounts. Mm. So none of it goes towards calculating the gross domestic product of a country. So there's no... There should... Even if we're not bringing money into the home, there still should be a recognition yeah. of the economic... Mm. Value. Input, the economic value yeah, of there that. There are tons of metrics to, value th to, to kind of be able to value that work because if you think about everything that gets done, there probably is some way to put a, a number on it or potentially another way to put the contribution that that makes ongoing to whether it be the healthcare system or whatever. So peeps, people who know how to do stuff with spreadsheets know how to do that. <laughs> it's just the kinds of people who are around the table who say mm -hmm. that we need to measure this. And one of the things that there's almost, for those of you who aren't data nerds in the room, there's almost... A Everybody is. Let's no, well, they're, they're, the ABS have often had to be forced every year to really think about we've got to continue to find complex ways to value time use, so the how, way people use their time, including who volunteers, who um, does all those kinds of things. And I would also like to see um, the entire category of caring for children separated from cleaning the toilet and doing the laundry <laughs> because I think these are kind of quite separate things. They tend to be lumped into mm. stuff that happens around the home. I think that's problematic. Mm. Can we talk a bit about workplace culture and how it is, I, I suppose, accommodating the requirements of mothers and, and of parents? So, so I mean, are each of you in full-time jobs or you work as freelancers? It's all a very different experience for us as women, how, how we actually are accepted or go through our lives. But what is it um, that you know, Rebecca, or, or, or about workplace culture that actually is understanding or getting more acceptable uh, of, of what women need? Oh, look, it's very uneven and, and it's still terrifyingly um, uh, backward in some areas. Mm. Although you have some large corporates and the public sector trying to do what they can. Um, so one of the things that... You know, there's many, many points you could make here, but one of the things that I've noticed quite a bit listening to women talk about re-entry into the workforce after their first child is that if they've decided or been able to take a full year off, so some of it paid and not, they re and, and often they want to go back part-time or with some flexible hours as they've come back into an organisation that's restructured or rethought their role and suddenly mm. they're in a position, not the same position isn't there for them or 
things have changed, they've got a new person that they're um, reporting to and we know from the research that your experience in the workforce with a child really not so much relies on whether the company has policies about it, but whether it's important, is about how your immediate manager mm. views your role. Um, so often we have women restructured or just um, factored out of the equation in the workforce and suddenly coming back and all of those challenges is made a lot worse by what must also be some implicit views about how valuable and how much that woman is going to be able to make a contribution. Mm. And as somebody who's really only employed part-time working women in her entire time as a career, I can tell you they work extremely hard and they're worth 10 of those guys who work around the office walking full-time with a cup of coffee. You seem to have enormous <laughs> amounts of time to fucking, you know, talk to people and all the rest of it. And you're like, and there's women furiously working. Yeah. And, you know, they're the most productive human beings on the planet mm. and, um, you know, the average CEO could learn a lot. There's no golfing trips. There's no, you know, any of that kind of stuff with these women. There. So it's, it's a terrible. recognition that there needs to be a different way. There is a flexibility of work, you know, whether it's job yeah. sharing or accepting that we can work in the morning, and, you know, when kids are at school and then we can work later at night or something mm. like that. The, how, how can we find a way to change, <laughs> I guess, workplace culture that prevents or precludes women from being able to... To, to take on what, how they want to be a parent, basically. Maxine, what do you what do you think? I think the you know that assumption that people are available from nine to five, or you know usually from eight to six, is a really difficult one because if you have school aged children, you're have, stuffed. <laughs> yeah, I have two school aged children. I'm a single parent, so I don't have another parent to share with. Um, I was in full time employment when I gave birth to my first child, and then went back. I think maybe three four days a week, but it was. Um, after having about six months off, and it was um, not impossible because I had a partner who was, you know, somewhat flexible in his work, not entirely, but, you know, there would be days where you kind of do a half day or work in the middle of the day. Um, and when I had my second child um, and became a single parent shortly afterwards, I basically re had to reskill, um, or not reskill, but, you know, start my own freelancing business, um, which is what I do now, and so I work. I say I work from home, but you know, I'm here and it's a Sunday, so obviously <laughs> there is some childcare involved. Um, but I, I cannot understand how particularly single parents mm. are able to work in jobs. You know, I don't know how I would return to a nine to five job in mm. terms of the cost of childcare, the worry about, you know, things like I have a child in year seven, there's no possibility for after school care. Mm. Do you give them a key to let themselves in the house? You know, there's all of these kind of things that suddenly come into, into play. And I think there are so many jobs I would easily be able to do if an employer would say, what hours are you available? You know, mm. these are the hours we need you to work in terms of 40 hours a week, how could you make this up? And I mm. think there are so many women in that situation. Um, and you know, why does everyone have to be in the office at the same time between nine yeah. and five? It's yeah. just crazy. It's bizarre. Yeah. yeah, it's so that you can all use the microwave at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Um, <laughs> why, nobody ever uses the microwave either in these offices. It's always empty. This is my theory. Uh, <laughs> Claire, what do you reckon? What can what 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 can we do? A sort of a bigger picture, I guess. To to find a way to potentially change workplace culture that, so that it is accommodating of the, the varying needs of what women parents need? Well, again, like Maxine, I'm a freelancer and I... So I don't really have uh, an, 
an experience of having to negotiate going back to work. I feel, in, you know, really, really lucky in lots of ways because um, I am the breadwinner in my family, but I also did have to go back to work pretty soon after having a baby, but I could do it from home or, you know, walking the pram around and typing mm. articles out on a phone, you know. <laughs> um, now we know how magic is happening. <laughs> okay. But, you know, lots of, lots of women obviously don't have that privilege and that luxury. And if they are in a position where they're a single mum and they, they can't, um, you know, it, it doesn't make financial sense for them to have to figure out how to get childcare and there's no, certainly no systems of support in place. Um, I have a friend at the moment who's just recently become a single mum and she's, she's struggling to wrap her head around how, no matter which way she looks at it, she's, she's worse financially off. If she goes and tries to find a full-time job somewhere, she's not doing particularly well in order to look after her child in their one-bedroom flat. Mm. But also if she's relying on Centrelink, then that's obviously mm. not... A, a way that's in any way supportive of single mums. Yeah. And then, in addition to that, all of the um, judgment and bullshit that you get yeah. from people on the outside as yeah. well. Um, For putting your child into childcare yeah. and not being there full time. Or and, even you know, being on Centrelink payments as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking about that obviously as someone who's not experiencing that. So that's, uh, I, I can see how distressing it is for her. So I can only assume that it's a distressing state generally for single mothers. Mm. Um, but I think that one of the problems is that this idea that, once again, that somehow the people who are marginalised by the system that, systems that we live in have to somehow not only adapt themselves to fit into those systems, but if any change is required, they have to do the work in figuring out how to change those systems and institute it and encourage in gentle ways to make those changes happen. Mm. Whereas it seems to me that, like as you said, this idea that somehow the working uh, a working day has to go from nine to five mm -hmm. just seems to like bizarrely not fit into a lot of people's lives yeah. like why who says that it has to yeah. be like that why can't the system change so that it's it's recognizes that children are not just this kind of additional yeah. peripheral mm -hmm. thing that other people take yeah. care of but they're actually human beings as yeah. well who mm. are a part of our community yeah. and so as a community of humans yeah. we have to figure out how to make these systems equitable and welcoming okay. mm. to all people. Mm. And it's clear that, that my children have not looked at my file of facts or pay any attention to my timetable because to get to work, to work, yeah, I do, to get to work, to get, because if they knew I had to get to work at nine o'clock, they wouldn't spend 25 minutes arguing about getting out of their pyjamas. So, you know, children have their own timetable. The other thing laid on what um, Clem said is that one of the things that women talk about more consistently than men in my research is the is what I call the tyranny of the triangle. So where can I afford to get housing? Where can I get a job? Mm. And where do I pick my children up? And the mm. wider that triangle is, right. if we think about the housing affordability absolute crisis in every, pretty much every capital city and in some regions, mm. where I'm going to get a job, where not only can I get a job, but I have some understanding and some support from that job, and where I can pick up my children, so where I can access childcare, or where their school is, the wider that triangle is, the harder it is. And so that, on top of this still very inflexible idea about 8.30 to 6, and if you're not there, somehow you're not coping, and that, that mm. by mere fact of turning up at 8.30 and being at work from 8.30 to 6, you're productive. Mm. Ridiculous ideas about mm, that mm. concept. It's interesting. So, some, I mean, some industries are probably better at dealing with this or have adapted to this 
more than others, you know, architecture or design or something like this where you do have a, a possibility of working at home, maybe you're more likely to be able to have those kind of flexible working arrangements. But so many people just can't get that happening, which is a real, a real shame. Um, what, what's different today, I suppose? I wanted to talk about the mother load itself, you know, because it's a pretty, pretty strong title for this, this session. Um, what's different about our generation or your generation as parents to your parents' generation as well? Is, is the job harder today? Is it different or is it ex exactly the same? Maxine, what do, what do you think? I think the expectations are a lot different. I mean, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, um, kind of, you know, regional fringe in New South Wales, and most people, mums, stayed at home. You know, and whether that was sometimes it was choice, sometimes it was you know necessity. Um, there were some mothers who worked. Um, I know my mum certainly kind of worked on and off, but you know essentially gave up the career that she had to to have three kids. And mm. I think the expectation now really is that you do it all, that you do it all. Um, and I think that is, it's, it's, it's more, a lot of the problem is actually the pressure of feeling like that. And I think the friends I have who are stay-at-home parents and choose to be stay-at-home parents have enormous guilt in exactly the same way that the friends who, who you know, work full-time because they want to or whatever. Mm. Um, but for me, it's the expectation that has changed. And also, I mean, that's linked into housing affordability, yep. as Rebecca said, it's linked in, into all of these other things. I mean, you can't, it's, it's, you, can, you can't pay a, a mortgage on one income, you know, these days. No, so it's not kind in Sydney. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And there's a risk as well that even if you can pay a mortgage on one income, that if your relationship breaks down, yeah. then there's a future financial risk mm. for women. You know, it's, it's the reason that the argument about the childcare is so frustrating. She was going to go back to work, but her salary barely covered the childcare. Mm. As if somehow, in thinking about it, she has to negotiate her right to go back to work yeah. by make, by ensuring that her salary alone mm. covers the childcare. Mm. Um, Actually, you talk about that. Really, you, you wrote an article, Maxine, that talked about this about how the childcare. I think it was you. You mm. know, childcare was more expensive than what you were earning at the time. Yeah. But you went back to work because it was an investment in your career and what you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably lost lost a lot of money for the for the and didn't have money to lose you know went into debt the first few years after my my daughter was born because mm. i thought i can't i know i mean you know the, the i worked in a legal field but i worked in human rights you know community legal center type things so it was like my salary is not going to cover childcare, and it's also that's the kind of job where you need to be dedicated you need to be there all the time you need to be have that emotional investment mm. and so that was the only way that i could really think of how am I going to have a future for myself and my kids. Mm. I need to manufacture something I can do from home mm. that has fairly flexible hours. Mm. I mean, I still bring my kids to a lot of events and things like this because if they're around and, you know, they're 7 and 12, they can sit quietly for an hour now. Um, and, and learn something. Yeah, 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 very good. And that's one thing that I guess, you know, I, al I will always ask, even if my kids aren't going to be with me on that day, I'll always say, do you have childcare? Right. Could I bring my kids? Because I feel like if you're in that position where you can ask that question and make someone think about it, even if you don't need it, mm. um, sometimes it can just be that thing that makes someone go, okay, 10 people have asked this question. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Maybe we should think about it. Mm. Mm. Oh, I interrupted you, Clementine, before, but you, and you were talking about the, the impact, of course, of, of childcare, uh, you know, women being sort of not, not allowed to go back to work because they were earning less money than... than yeah, and in some cases, I think it's accurate to say not allowed, because mm -hmm. that would be how that conversation happens. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other aspect of 
it just being assumed that even if you even if they have a joint account and they pull all their money and you can logically say well when you remove x from y this is what's ended up with it it still is important to reframe that as being that i think that you should pay percentages based on your income for the childcare so yeah. The, the father, if he's earning a lot more money, in you know, if we're talking hetero, hetero relationships, obviously, mm. if he's earning a lot more, say he pays 70% of the childcare and she pays 30% and they have that conversation with each other because it's in recognition of the fact that they both should be supported by this system to go back to work. Um, but I was thinking that, you know, what you were saying about it being different back when we were being raised, you know, what, what, what it was like for our mums. My mum didn't have a career because she was sort of forced to leave school at 13 and um, you know, had a lot of lost opportunities, which led to a lot of trauma later on that kind of you know, plagued her with depression for, for many years before she died. And a friend of mine was, um, my dad was working overseas for a lot of the time when we were little kids and she had three kids living out on a farm in you know, the, the middle of Queensland, it was not from Australia. Um, and it wasn't like he just dumped her there and left because he's a bad person. But it's just that it was just expected then, I think, that you could just do that. You know, mm. he had to go off and make the money. And so she was in the middle of this farm with his parents and uh, three kids, no support, no emotional support, um, really like undiagnosed, probably issues of postnatal depression as well, I'm sure. Mm. Um, and I just had to kind of figure out how to look after these three children. And a friend of mine was asking me the other day about, or asking a lot of people about, um, she, was, she was experiencing that guilt of going back to work, you know, and leaving her small child. And she said, I know logically that this is an okay thing to do, but I, I want to have people's experiences of having mothers who went back to work and they've got a really strong relationship with them. And I said, well, I had a mother who spent all day long sleeping and didn't wake up until, often like left us at school, you know, waiting for hours to be picked up because she was still, you know, she was not well. Mm and she was still in bed asleep. And, and I had a great relationship with my mum, and I love, still love my mother, obviously. Um, so I feel like she was absent, really, in the same way that a mother would be absent if they were at work. Mm. And a lot of things we missed out on because of that absence. We still had a great relationship, but I would have much preferred her to be absent because she mm. was doing something that she found yeah. mm. fulfilling yeah. intellectually and that, that gave her some sense of autonomy and control over her own life. Yeah. yeah we, we don't have to go back too many generations to realise that it was pretty shitty being, yeah. <laughs> being, yeah. being a mother. And, and one of the things that is quite interesting, I remember once doing a focus group of men in their 70s and, and there was a bit of, you know, nostalgia. They were talking about their kids and grandkids and, oh, you know, in our day it was just all pretty simple, you know, mum stayed at home, dad's work. And one guy said... Yeah, and he said, and my mother was miserable. She was a really mm. bright woman, but I think her whole life she was depressed and it really made her hate my father in the end. And she didn't, qu she didn't particularly like us either. Mm. It was a really interesting reflection from this older man about that kind of punctuated that nostalgia. But the other thing that's interesting to me, and if I think about my, my mother and my grandmother's upbringing, is while it was very limited and there were limited choices, the one thing they had was a larger family to assist. Mm, mm, so my mum mm. was an only child, but she had lots of aunts and uncles. I mean, they grew up on a, a Queensland farm. Mm. Whereas what is interesting now is we kind of think that the nuclear family should, should, should provide everything mm. that a child needs. And, um, 
And that is really problematic. And, and it's a very, it's, 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 not a, it's, it's not something that's ever really happened traditionally in history. And it's a kind of this particular moment in life where we're putting all this pressure on both women and men, but particularly women, and expecting them to do it on its own. And one of the guilt that comes from women is that, that they would ask for much help from that broader village to raise this child. And I, mm. I, remember, I remember this particularly in the beginning of my career as a researcher, interviewing a woman that had come from South Sudan with four kids and we were talking about, um, she was a refugee and then became, asylum seeker became a refugee. And she asked me, to long, did a long piece of research with her, in the end she said, I don't know why, I don't know how women raise children in this um, culture. She says, how do you clean a house with four kids in it? She said, back in South Sudan, my neighbour would look after my kids while I clean my house or I would do something and the opposite would happen. She says, it's like, you've got to do everything here. Mm -hmm. And it was just a very interesting reflection <coughs> on how problematic it is that we think that suddenly this... The pressures that we that put on ourselves. That two individuals with maybe a bit of paid help and occasionally grandparents coming in and being helpful or not. Mm. Um, <laughs> that, that's the way to go, which is one of the things... I mean, I've tried to do since I've had children is... Um, is just offer as much help as I can and mm. have as much of an open house as possible and, you know, make the lasagna and drop it over as much as you can which, to other Which friends. is cool. This, you know, that's, you're right, actually, being able to ask other people for help, the, you know, yeah. just the, the, the grandparents, et cetera, yeah. who are sort of unpaid work, of course, yeah. but to be able to talk to the broader tribe of people that you have within your yeah. lives as well. Mm. Mm. Um, what about the mental load? You guys have already touched on it a little bit already, but you know we've, we've talked about how women are responsible for the domestic planning and, and for all the organisation of everything else. How do you manage that? Let's, let's just briefly touch on what this is like for you. Clem, you, you, you talked about it a bit before, but what is, first of all, what is the mental load? Give us the breadth of it, and then how, how do you manage it? Um, oh, well, I just... Uh, I take the definition of it mainly from that comic that the French artist Emma drew, which sort of just encapsulated for me, and, and it seemed, for a lot of people, stuff that had been swirling in our head but we didn't have a name for. Um, and I think it's just... It's all that expectation that, you know, you, you also be the one who knows when the doctor's appointments are, when, like... Book day is it? Book day is book what fair. It's yeah. Book fair. Book, book fair. week. Those bloody yet, uniform. Those bloody <laughs> things you've got to do for book week. I almost want to burn books because of it. <laughs> like actually, that week makes me want to burn books. Yeah. I stop <laughs> reading. I can't put together another costume. It's your for job you. to do the costume. Kind of taps right. into that sort of gross um, <laughs> joke, almost that like, oh, the mum's the CEO of the house. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like yeah. all those things that are kind of told to women or sold to women to make them feel better about the fact that yeah. they have no power in yeah. the world. You I want to like, be the, I, I want to be a bank CEO of my house. I want to get to get shitloads of money yeah, for well, doing <laughs> the wrong thing. That's what I want. But it's that's a, it's a CEO position that you do for the exposure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not for the salary. Um, it's pro you know, bono. but it's like it's like the all the dumb dad ads, you know, where it's one of my favourite ones. It's a few years old, and it's it's an ad for the dad is staying at home. Um, the mum's gone out probably to get her nails done or something. Um, <laughs> he's given her a few hours off while he babysits the kid, um, and he's at home with this little baby, and he's you know racing around because because always in that in these ads there's always some sort of oh mum's home. I've got to race around and do all the things that I didn't do while she was out. Um, which always seemed to suffice, you know, like it's fine to just do a five-minute slap dash job, job. Anyway, so he's racing around. 
makes her a cup of coffee and um, she comes in and she says, oh, thank, thank you so much for this coffee, it's delicious. Oh, and you fed the baby too. And he was like, the baby, the baby, I forgot to feed the baby. And then she looks up to the wall unit. This is, it's an ad for an air conditioner in the house. All right. And it's a smart air conditioner that you can set the timer off so that the heating will come on before you get home. And she looks up at the air conditioner as he's racing into the kitchen to be like, oh, I forgot to feed the baby. And she's like... And the air conditioner kind of like <laughs> flat. <laughs> so dad is so incompetent that the air conditioner remembered to feed the baby. But all that stuff is supposed... I feel like it's kind of like, you know... Women, you are the CEOs of the house. You, we all know who's secretly in charge of the world. Mm-hmm. It's all of the women at home. That's why men have to go out and do all of that, like, way less Working hard stuff. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with Running the government wars, all yeah. that yeah. kind of stuff. All so that stuff. But, you know, we know that you're really the ones who are in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's kind of part of that mental load thing as well. Like, it's a, it's a way to make a joke. Or a way, a way to make it taste a bit sweeter to us. You know, yeah, that yeah. We can be in, in control of all those things. I'm, like, way less organised than my partner when it comes to remembering dates and, um, you, you know, having that kind of analytical, listy-type brain. And yet still we've fallen into the dynamic in our relationship where I'm the one who has to sort of, like, remember when the vaccines are due, uh, and, which is why our child's a bit overdue, actually. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Oopsies. Um, but yeah, like, uh, that's, I mean, that's, I don't know, everyone knows about the mental load. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. How, does it, how about for you, um, Maxine? Um, I think I feel that, you know, we kind of sell Western children this fallacy that they should be able to do nothing. You know, that we're still tying their shoelaces at eight years old. It's ridiculous. So my children do a lot of the work, right. you know? Um, they know that I'm terrible at remembering things. I say to them, if you do not tell me to do your lunch order the night before, you won't get your lunch yeah. order. You know, mm-hmm. it's your responsibility. Yeah. And they're really good. You know, my yeah. son's 12. He cooks one night a week. He can only cook three things. But he can cook them pretty yeah. well. Does he cook you them know, all at once? supervision. Or, right. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, that concept of, like, kids should... It's our job yeah. to make our kids autonomous. Yeah. Right. You know, they should be able to yeah, be able to do things for themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to teach them that being part of a community, whether or not that's absolutely. a community of people or a house, yeah. Yeah. means you all have jobs to yeah, help that community absolutely. run. Yeah. You know, my older child will help my younger child with her reader or, you know, she will help him if he needs to pack things away or, mm. you know. And I think that that concept of just, it's a family effort... Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we're just kind of, you know, practically chewing their food for them sometimes. And that's something that I have had to kind of, you know, once I became a single parent, it was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to get these yeah, kids yeah, to yeah, help. Yeah. Because get them all to do how it. How do you do it? Yeah. Mm. How do you do it otherwise? How's your two-year-old going with cooking the dinner? All good? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because he's... Uh, we have a son and I'll just, you know, in acknowledgement and celebration of trans identities that may not always be the case but we do refer to him as a boy and as our son um so he and i say that because i'm the gender stereotype that we always hear is that oh boys just love this kind of stuff and girls love this kind of stuff and that's that's what justifies to people later on that split between making girls do most of the most of the household chores that take a lot longer so the boys might be asked to like take the rubbish out, which takes three seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, sweep the path outside, which, again, doesn't really take that long. The girls have to do the ironing, the cooking, the washing up, etc. all the laundry. I mean, that's what it was like in my house. Oh, yeah. My brother 
almost never really did the things that was expected of him and he was never asked to go like to make I sure I always that thought that done. mowing the lawn was the most fun job you could possibly imagine <laughs> as I had to clean the kitchen with my sister and yeah, get I mean, no the food one, ready. That stuff is boring, but you yeah. know, girls are just better at it. Yeah. That's what I was told. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to watch my almost two year old who loves cleaning because he's just a small human who has no gender identity yet, who just copies what he sees his parents doing in the house, will get that out the vacuum cleaner and he'll go, oh, oh, and come and like hold it as you walk around with it. And um, he's recently gotten just big enough that um, he loves when I open up the dishwasher and starts to unstack it and I can hand him now his plastic plates for his lunch and say, go and put them in the cupboard. Even though, like, I can do it, but it's important to you know, really kind of foster that sense of community and jobs and roles. Independence. So he's not cooking just yet, no. but it won't be long. <laughs> Rebecca? So, oh, look, it, one, of the, one of the first research reports I wrote at the beginning of my career was from 1979 on mothers and daughters, and there was a, a quote in it from a young woman saying, um, you know, Dad and my brothers just, you know, are so lazy and they, you know, maybe do a little bit of stuff in the garden and somebody gives them a medal but I'm expected to do all these kinds of help mum. Mum thinks it's easier to get me to help her than it is to get them. And she goes, it's going to be different for me in my relationship. And I can tell you that it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, In a lot of the research I do, women still do that thing. They're they're forcing their sons to do more than perhaps they have... But they're still letting their husbands a bit off the hook. And there's still resentment from young women that I interview at 14 or 15 saying that the expectation, that, that you know, their, their rooms have to be neater and all the rest of it. So I just want things to move further along that road. And, you know, when people say things like, you know, women are just, you know, women are just better at, at cleaning than men, and I would say, well, <laughs> the only real difference is that you've got a vagina and they've got a penis. I wouldn't use your vagina actively in any cleaning... <laughs> Whatsoever, it's kind of unsanitary and often... Just um, try to work that one out, hang on yeah. a second. <laughs> and it really, I just find that kind of stuff really doesn't work. Like basically, basically, you learn by doing and you learn yep. by getting off your ass and just and by And really. by, as, as you both were saying, it's actually by doing as an example, you know, yeah, this exactly. is how you do it. It's not, yeah. just, it's not just letting them get away with it. It's, mm. it's time to actually make it happen. Um, we're our own worst enemies, I suppose. You've, we've all talked about being judged... Uh, and how we judge ourselves and how we judge each other. Um, the guilt that we as women can put on uh, other women, of course, that we, we see, that we look at the, the rise of the Insta mum, the Instagram mum, for example, and you, 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 to try and compare yourself to people who do have these kind of perfect lives. What, what are we seeing out there or what do you see out there that, that impacts on this? You know, again, for, for example, the, the Insta, Instagram mum who just does everything so beautifully and perfectly and you can't actually live up to those expectations. What do we do? Do we just turn Instagram off? Do we get rid of it? Probably not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Maxine? You're, not in, you're on Twitter. No, you're on I'm Twitter. on Twitter. But, you know, like, I tweet about all the disasters in my household. You <laughs> right. know, that's part of why I do it, because, you know, as someone who's publicly visible, people look at you and go, oh, she's doing it, she's on her own, she's got kids, why can't mm. I be doing it? You mm. know, and there's this, you know, that kind of tendency that that's, we put our best selves forward, or we're supposed to put our best selves forward on social media um and i think that you know it's really it's (laughs) (laughs) yeah like get off social media (laughs) 
Yeah, I think it's really important just to be aware that, that it's glossed over. If you're only seeing perfect things, it's probably not so perfect underneath. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah mm, for sure. Um, Clementine? Um, I th- yeah, look, I think that it's... I agree that I think that, that representing a um, more of a reality than, than not one is really important. I guess, like, I really hate those Instagram perfect live accounts because I find them not only unrealistic but I abhorrent yeah <laughs> that's me abhorrent. sorry yeah. I just have real concerns about what you know the, I'm thinking the accounts that you know like um I don't know if I if, if it's okay to name someone but like Roxy Jusenko Jusenko has an, an Instagram <laughs> an Instagram account for her daughter and I think her daughter's like six or something like that. It's got thousands and thousands of followers. And yeah. I just have, I guess, some concerns um, about the privacy aspect of that and mm. who's making those decisions, where that consent lies. Um, I think that that's my biggest sense of discomfort when I look at those kinds of accounts and that sort of ph- ph- uh, uh, phenomenon is not whether or not, like, a perfect image of motherhood is being presented to me because I think I'm. I think most of us are realistic enough, uh, realistic enough to know that that's not what's happening. But just where the consent lies with those children and mm, mm. why, um, presumably, they're making a lot of money. Where that money's going to? Uh, it's not a labour force that can be um, uh, legislated uh, or, or, or tracked. Sorry, I'm losing all my words. Um, there's no labour laws, uh, labour force laws around how many po- photographs you post of yeah. your child on Instagram or how many hours you make them sit having like a perfect picnic photo right. shoot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so that's that's probably really what concerns me more than anything about it. And also, it's a very like segregated kind of version of. It's very middle class. It's very white. Yeah. It's very privileged. It's very thin. Very conventional in all of the ways. That it looks so I just ultimately find it kind of boring anyway mm. but um, but also troubling that this is what is that this is once again is what's being kind of like consumed and repackaged as aspirational yeah yeah Rebecca yeah no I, I don't like kale smoothies so I don't really follow oh, come any on, of they're really <laughs> yummy <laughs> it's like eating um, grass I suppose one of the look one of the uh, very broadly one of the good things about kind of social media more broadly and access to the lives of other parents is that you can find solace in all kind of connections with people where you feel you have some, um, you know, things in common. So you might be able to get some tips or at least to feel not alone. But one of the problems I generally have with a lot of online advice about motherhood is it's pitched as generic, but it's not generic. You're all the Um, same. Yeah, Yeah. and and it is pitched, as Clementine said, kind of wealthy, white. um, You know, I'll give you an example. (laughs) When I had my um, twins, I thought, I never really read any parenting advice, but I thought I'm having two, maybe there's something, you know. (laughs) It was like a cage fight in there, you know, 24-7, so I thought, (laughs) what the fuck's going to happen when they come out? So I thought, um, well, I'll go online and and see see um, see what's going to happen. And... I found this 
thing about talking about raising twins and making sure that you raise them as separate people. And they weren't co-joined twins, so I kind of <laughs> worked that out pretty quickly. But um, anyway, and so one of the, one of the tips was um, make sure that from the very beginning that you put your children in separate rooms, separately designed to reflect their personality. And I thought, I have a child and I need to sleep somewhere. Usually I have to have four... In order to raise these children well, I need a four-bedroom house in Sydney. I mean, hello. And so, you know... And so I bought a four-bedroom house. Yeah, and yeah. so then I, you know... I paid attention oh, well, to I, I went to Maxine's Twitter yeah, account yeah. and had a laugh because that was more useful. So... Yeah, so I think, I think generally parenting advice online can be incredibly useful but also really, really problematic mm. and um, should be taken with a grain of salt. Taken with a grain of salt, for sure. Um, we're going to go to questions in a moment. So if you have any questions, um, there are two, there's a microphone just here on my right and another one just over there. And if you can, it would be great to go up and, and sort of line up behind the microphones and then we will raise the house lights up and... Um, We'll get to your questions. If you can't get up for any particular reason, um, obviously just let me know because we can get one of these mics and bring it to you as well. Um, but so before we go to question and answer, maybe we can talk about what, what is it that we can do? How can we um, make motherhood or parenting a bit easier or, or spaces? How can we make spaces for mothers broadly to be feel better supported, to feel that they have a voice and can actually do what they need to do, whether it's to go to work or to be at home and looking after their children or whatever it happens to be. What, what sort of systems do we need to set up in place to, to, help, to help mothers, essentially? Very broad, but Maxine, what's, what are your observations? I think there's great power in, in you know, group pressure. So even if you don't have a child, even if you're not planning on having a child, every venue you go to, every job you apply for, ask the questions. Do you have flexible work hours? Mm. Do you have a craze? Do you have... Because I think it's that sense of, you know, companies being allowed to... Workplaces being allowed to be willfully blind and say, well, no-one else has asked for that, so we're just going to replace you with someone who can do the job. Right. Um, mm. Because I think, for me, you know, thinking of women who can't kind of work from home, that's the, that's the one biggest thing, would be the flexibility of hours and the ability to actually, you know, have your child at work or mm. have them close by, those kinds of things. People can bring their dogs to work these days. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Can't you bring your, your son or daughter yeah. or something yeah. like that? Mm. Um, Clem? I mean, it's also about knowing your rights, I guess, too. I think that in the West in particular, we sort of get off a little bit on um, this sneery attitude towards children. Like, we think it's really cool to sort of be like, ugh, children on the plane, children on the train, children in the cafe. Um, and I've, I, look, I'm not saying that before I had a kid I didn't indulge in that because it's a very strong cultural thing mm. to become a part of, this idea that children should be seen and not heard and that anyone who brings a child into a public space is somehow like betraying the code of that public space, which is that we're all British here and stiff, stiff upper lip. Um, like it's very, it's very... Anglo and um, and ultimately unhelpful to everyone. So I think that uh, partly part of the part of the issue is making children much more visible in the world that we live in. You know, and things like it's great that there's a crash here today. Yeah. Um, it's amazing that it's the first time that this has happened at the Sydney Opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's amazing. So yeah. this for yeah. this to be like good work. For this to be the first time we've gotten to this point and it hasn't happened before. That you know, it's it just show, it goes to show how 
how little those issues okay. are thought of. Who's being excluded by the fact that they don't have childcare by either being able to come and sit in the audience or being able to sit on the stage and share their expertise? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did when I, uh, I went on a book tour two months after my baby was born, and I, again, stressed that I had an enormous amount of luck and privilege in being able to do this, but I didn't have any choice but to take him with me and so often spent the, you know, the sessions on stage with him breastfeeding. Um, I was really lucky to be able to do that, but I think that being able to sort of use the space that you have and try and make it more accessible and try and change the space that you have access to is a really good place for us to start as well. Like, mm. To make it seem like that's a possibility for other people is... Um, rather than just sort of conforming to the rules that are put in place mm. for us without challenging, without using the power that we might have in a situation yeah. to challenge. Mm. Mm. Yeah, look, very briefly, I think there's three things we can do for women. Take out Corey Bernardi. On yeah. play, on play. <laughs> <laughs> um, that Where are we taking so him? So many people. No, just take him out. Take him out, take him out. <laughs> People think, no, people, no, 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 no. People, think that, people think that you want to take him out, but I'm a sleeper. Right? I'll, I'll, <laughs> they'll think it's you, but it's really me. Um, we've got to, as, as Maxine said, we've got to address the gender pay gap, and there's yes. lots of ways we could do yep. that. And the third is I would really like to see us get serious about childcare in all kinds of forms, not just long daycare, but short yep. periods. And that cannot be the expense of the pay and the quality for childcare workers, many of whom are mothers themselves. So yeah. we've got to think more expansively about how we can improve the situation of mothers, not just the ones that are really productive in the workforce and you know are going to be mm. the CEOs of the you know of the next generation, all mothers, regardless mm. of whether they work and what they do. And also just quickly again, I think just ensuring a basic standard of living for all parents, you know, and, yeah. and, and and by extension kids, you know, there have been successive cuts to parenting payments, particularly for single parents under successive governments, you mm. know, Julia Gillard's government made massive cuts to single parents yeah. and Huge. they're able to do that because they're people who aren't able to mobilise, yeah. you know, they don't have the time, the money to be campaigning, it's kind of like, well, we'll just do this because yeah. they're the easy can't one. campaign yeah. anyway, yeah. so I think recognising that it's going to save taxpayers later on. You know, if kids are healthy, if they are, um, if they, you know, they're going to school and all of these things that kind of come with actually having a basic standard of living. Absolutely. Know, standard of living. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so again, there's a microphone here. If you have some questions, please feel free to, to come to the microphone. And I think there's two, two people there. Hi. Are you having fun, everybody? Yeah. yeah. Aren't they great? Yeah. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much, ladies. As, as a mum with older children, um, it's wonderful to be in a group of mothers with babies. When my kids were little, this would never have happened, and there being a crash, it's just mind-boggling. I've got a single comment, and then I have a, a difficult question for you. My first comment is, um, you are all amazing. You, what you do every day is thankless, and ignored by most people in our society and go forth and do. I have an almost 18 year old and an almost 21 year old and they've had a single working, full time working mum and they have frequently not been there for pyjama day <laughs> and they've frequently gone to school with a single school shoe <laughs> and they have not died <laughs> or been misshapen man to 
today I had the pleasure of here with her girlfriend in her five week old to see my 17 year old son holding a little baby and loving Aww. it and going that I'm hopefully raised the boy who can be kind to babies and mums. So we have hope. So that's my Yay. Um, And my question is this, school hours. Um, I have my youngest is about to finish school, so thankfully the tyranny of the school holidays and school hours is almost over for me, but it is not for many of you. What can we do about that? Because I feel like, and I'm a teacher, so you know, uh, I have that twin thing of please let them leave at three o'clock. Yeah. Also, but I understand for parents that school hour conundrum, particularly for high school parents. Mm where there is no childcare in year seven. Um, what can we do about that? What can we do to reframe the school day and the work of schools and broaden the work of schools so that for mothers and parents, it is a, their participation in the workforce can be really enlivened by the children going to school, not diminished by it. Mm. It's a great question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, round of applause for the question, yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I was having a whinge on Twitter, of course, um, <laughs> a couple of years ago about the fact that we have six weeks, you know, six week summer holidays. And I was saying, you know, it's a throwback to when, um, you know, when you expected to have one parent who stayed at home all the time. And someone actually came on and said, no, it's actually, it was aligned with harvest time. You know, so that all the kids could I'm be glad home. I'm glad we're keeping <laughs> up with the time. So all the kids could be home. Harvest and they time. Would, you know, go and help with the harvest. Mm. Mm. And I was like, what, what madness that that is still <laughs> the six weeks on the holidays. I mean, who has, you know, I work for myself. So my kids are at home. You mm. know, they're bored. They're, you know, but then people who don't work for themselves, they are, where do you, what do you do with kids? I don't have mm. family that live in the same state that I live in. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, that thing of, as well, high school, like, why aren't there youth clubs mm -hmm. where you can stick your kid in there in year seven and they take them to the movies or, I mean, it just makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense that there would be something like that. Mm. I mean, yeah, your kids would probably hate it, but too bad. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, they hate being at home anyway, bored. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I don't understand why we have these, you know, particularly the two week holidays are difficult, but particularly yeah. that six week period. Six week break. What yeah. on earth do you do with children? Mm. Yeah. But yeah. the school hours, particularly, what are they, eight to three? Is that, is that the, the no, time? Yeah. Pretty, pretty nine, much. Nine I mean, to what, three. Nine till three. Nine till three, yeah. depends on what it is. I, um, I know one school, I think it's East Marylands Primary School, that actually responded to the, the community that was going to that school and changed the school hours on in negotiation with the parents, mm. essentially. So they worked with the community to change the school hours to work with those children, mm. which I think is not a, is a reasonably good approach. Rebecca, yeah. do you have a perspective on this one? Oh, look, I think it was a really important point, and as a teacher, is that we don't want to, you know, every, we're interconnected, and we already know that teachers, primary and secondary school, that is a hard task, and they're often, you know, un unlike some politicians who've tweeted about this recently, they work during the holidays. They can't actually teach unless they have. They're working mm. after three, they're working on the weekends, they're working through the holidays. So whatever we do can't prejudice them any further. Um, no, it's insane because most, um, you know, if we think about that triangle that I was talking about, trying to get, if you're trying to get kids to school, trying to get from your house and with, the commu with commuting and everything to work and the looks occasionally on co-workers and bosses faces when you walk in at 9.15 and that's supposed to be flexible that you've been able to come in at 9.15. Mm, it's really, yeah. you know, we've got these bizarre crashing um, schedules that are really problematic. 
Part of it too, I think, is again, and, and harking back to what I was saying before about this idea that it's only really the parents that need to be around when and, and be doing everything for children. Um, there's got to be models elsewhere about where we may not necessarily want seven or eight-year-olds in learning from eight o'clock till six o'clock, but they can be in some kind of interesting activity that's being <coughs> overseen in some way. Um, and so whether that's via the community or via the neighbourhood or via more organised care, so mm. we've really got to change that somehow. Mm. Um, given it's still, we're still, we're all doing harvest time with our children during <laughs> summer, I suspect we'll be having this conversation again in another 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be really upsetting. That would be good. Okay, so we've got a few people lining up now, so we'll have a question from here, then a question from there, so thank you. Hello. Hello. Um, my name's Jo. I had my um, baby seven weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. I always wanted a girl, but um, uh, when I had Eddie, I decided I would raise a feminist son, and now is a really good time to bring up a good man, because there are a lot of good men needed right now. So, um, but I actually wanted to talk about career progression, because um, when I started my job, I knew that I wanted to have a child um, within the first... 12 to 18 months and so I spent my first 12 months desperately trying to prove um, how indisposable I would be um, and so I spent all my, well I would I would do a good job anyway but I was really fearful that um, if I wasn't of top-notch quality that somehow when I was on maternity leave that they would decide to get rid of me because I'd given them all these reasons it turned out that my manager um, was very understanding when I eventually told her but there was a lot of fear around mm telling her that I was pregnant because um, I was really worried about um, how she might feel about how serious I was with my career and so forth. And so now um, I'm on maternity leave and what I'm concerned about is that when I go back to work, I'm now a few steps backward. Um, I don't want to just have the same job that I had before. Mm. I want to still be able to progress. And so I just wanted to ask if, if you had any thoughts around career progression when mm. you got a little one and you've got flexible hours and mm. you can't stay in the office 12 hours yeah. anymore. Thank you. Jo? Um, <coughs> who wants to tackle career progression? Uh, I think that Rebecca's probably got a lot more insight on that just from a sociological perspective. The, the one thing I'll say is that in Jamila Rizvi's book, Not Just Lucky, one of the things that she recommends to all women in the workplace, which I think would, would be suitable for you as well and for women returning to work, is to keep really, really detailed lists about all of the things that they do in their role that, um, that they can use then when they're negotiating a, a promotion or negotiating mm -hmm. a salary increase or moving you know, ahead in the company, is that they can bring out all of the evidence basically of what they've done and say, this is, this is what I've done for you, this is what I will do for you, etc. That's the one tiny little piece of advice I can give because I don't work in an office. So. Yeah, it's good advice. Rebecca, something? Yeah, I, I understand your concern and, and I, I wish I could say that you shouldn't have that concern. Yeah. Um, if you get on well with your manager and your manager is more than just understanding, is actually actively supportive and will come back and have a conversation with you which isn't either, oh, you know, just you know, we're not going to give you too much to do, we're just going to let you settle in, which can be empathetic or can be code mm. for, we just don't think that you're, <laughs> we just don't think that you're up for it. Mm. Having a real conversation, and, and I've had that conversation many times as a manager about, we don't really know how, what's going to happen when you come back. It, it can often really depend on the kind of child you have, and it's like walking through a mystery door. 
But I've never, ever assumed that somebody coming back from maternity leave, whether they're part-time or full-time, just wants to coast along. Mm. Yeah. And we often have a conversation beforehand about working out, well, if you weren't going to have a child, what would be your next step? Mm. Whether it be a new role or a new skill, and then when you come back, let's have a conversation about what that next step might be. Mm. But really, we know from all of the research done by, you know, very clever people who, who look at um, things like women's career progression and the Australian workforce, that who your manager is is a really important line of defence for you. So your company might have these policies, but how they play out on the ground is a, is a whole other ballgame. So um, uh, Clem's um, advice is very good. It's know your legal rights. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I wish you absolutely the best of luck with Thank both so child and career. Thank you, Jo. Um, I think we've got a couple more minutes to go, so thank you for your question. Um, my question's about the mental load. Um, men obviously are able to make lists and achieve things. So do you think that it's women's... I mean, they work... I mean, they do this in their jobs, so... Um, do you think that women, because... Why do we hold the mental load? Do you think it's because our criteria is so strict so you know we don't want the bathroom cleaned every two weeks we want it cleaned every week and we don't want the garbage overflowing we want it you know much lower and if we're organizing the children they don't need to do you think we've kind of given given ourselves the mental load and if we have how do we how do we share it mm. i think we should all ask ourselves why we're happy to partner and reproduce with men who are slobs. <laughs> um, really? <laughs> the bar is so low, like... Um, oh, heterosexuality. Um, I, I think that... The, I mean, there was an article that, so, that someone wrote a few months ago about t taking a conscious step back. You know, it was, it was like, this, try this trick in your home. Um, and it was about taking a conscious step back from, from taking responsibility for all that stuff and outlining it to your partner beforehand that this is what was going to happen, coming up with lists together and saying this is what needs to be done in, in the home. I mean, still, this is still work that she will have to do yeah. and organise to begin with. <laughs> but it was sort of framed as being like this is the first step where you could kind of have those conversations. I mean, the thing is that... Presumably when you, when, when a man and a woman, if a man and a woman move in together in a romantic capacity, instantly his level of housework goes down and her level of housework goes up. Whether there's a That's not me just saying that, right. that's, that's trackable. Um, then when they have a child, that disparity of work increases even more significantly. So there's a question as well of just like assumptions and laziness, like mm. what is going on? I mean, it's called patri patriarchy, spoiler, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? Patriarchy that lets men believe that once they partner with a woman, that all of the work that they may have done, oh, we're hoping that they may have done for themselves living as a single person, mm. suddenly just doesn't become their responsibility anymore. Because, well, you know, there's one washing machine and laundry's happening anyway, so she, she just does the laundry. I don't mm. understand that. I don't understand why that happens, but I especially don't understand why that happens when there's no children involved. Mm. Um, but it, and yet it does, like you speak to, to couples where there's no children and he's just managed to get into this really amazing situation where all of a sudden his clothes yeah. are being washed yeah. for him. And, and why, would he, like why, would he, why would he change that, I suppose? Yes. But I don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Don't do it. But then it just falls apart. Why wash someone else's laundry? clothes? Why would you do it? I feel like one of the, one of the smallest, surely like least demanding 
immediate feminist things you can do in your life is wash no man's clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose the point you're trying to make is to what extent are we taking on some of this ourselves? And I think we can't discount that that's part of it. Um, the motivations for us doing that are, are multiple. But one of the things that I definitely think we can stop doing is start seeing those kinds of things as somehow a virtuous thing that we're doing. Isn't it great? You know, I'm better at that kind of stuff than him. I think that we can change the frame around mm. um, how we do that. And one of the one of the one of the saddest things I well, one, two of the saddest things I've ever read in research was I was reading a report in the early 80s where a woman said, you know, she'd been, a, she'd been trained as a lawyer and she said she was going back to law, but it was okay. She felt good about going back to full-time because she still baked a cake for her family every week. <sighs> and I just kind of thought, oh, that's really sad, but, like, I see versions of that being said as well, this idea that it's okay that I do all this stuff because everything else is okay, and I think that we can probably try and stop doing that a bit, mm. you know, there's, there's structures and, and forces that make us feel that way. Um, the other really saddest piece of research I was a multi-country study on Mother's Day. This is really, the Motherlode um, event was Edwina's way of doing something political after Mother's Day to talk about motherhood. Yep. There was a multi-country study on Mother's Day asking what mothers around the world wanted. And Australian mothers were singular in saying that instead of a diamond ring or all the rest of it, they just wanted to be thanked. And I thought, that is pathetic. Yeah. That is really, <laughs> really, really pathetic. They're, apparently all the mothers in Asia wanted a diamond ring, so I was like, the Asian women know what they're doing. Sell the diamond ring, get, some, get rid of us. And I thought, that is really sad, that all we want to do is th be thanked for the work that we're doing because you cannot be thanked enough to mm. clean up the vomit. Yeah. I cannot be thanked enough to clean up vomit I've cleaned up. Yeah. There is no yeah. thank you for that. Um, so I'm real, I feel sad. So I think there's a little bit of that that we can control to change, to move things, but there's a lot of other kind of structural and other stuff that we know. Yeah, I think that broadly speaking as well, um, men know that they can, even if they don't consciously know this, yeah. they know they can get away with it because women will always be the safety net yeah. and they will, we, will, we will particularly be the safety net if children are involved because it's one thing to have a standoff with your partner when you don't have to worry about yeah. like a small child yeah. that requires help and assistance but you just don't have the luxury of being able to do that if it's you know you have to care about like hygiene and the health of your kid and whether yeah. or not they're being fed and so one thing I, I, I suggest is if you are in a position where you're safe to do so a lot of times it seems that women don't pursue these arguments with their partners, their male partners, because it just becomes too much of a hassle and they don't want to have to repeat themselves. And I, if, any, if you're anything like me, I fucking hate being turned into a nagger. Yeah. I hate that feeling. Yeah. So we just don't have those conversations. But I think that it's really important early on, if you can, to actually force those conversations and force the arguments, because otherwise you'll just get on this track where it's just something it doesn't that you do. end. It doesn't yeah. end well. Mm. You know, so you're having... So the, in the end, you have the... If you have the fights consistently at the beginning, the payoff will happen. They'll either step up or they'll... Or just, frankly, just get rid of them. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I've got to say... I've got to say, the third time I threw my husband's shoes in the trash when they are in the way that we were... That worked. <laughs> where are my shoes? 
They're Don't in know, the mate. trash yeah. because they were on the floor and I tripped over them, so I put them in the trash. <laughs> the third time, just a treat. So, survival tips are basically throw everybody's shoes in the bin. <laughs> That's how you get through it. Unfortunately, uh, I'm actually being told that we have to wrap it up, uh, so I'm very sorry, Chev, who's got one final question, but I'm sure these guys are going to hang around for a bit longer and, and have a chat. Is that right? Um, yep. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, please take a 